Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Today we've got a bonus episode. We recorded a live podcast at Davidson College on June 8th, 2019, in the Tyler Tallman Sloan Music Building, known to us students who attended in the late 70s as the old 900 room, but more about that later. I want to thank Davidson College and thank all my classmates and the authors who appeared on the panel from my class for attending the live podcast, which turned out to be a really fun event. We're grateful to our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte McMurray Library, for helping authors give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte McMurray Library serves an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. We're also grateful to the Queen City Podcast Network, with whom this show is now affiliated, for running the technical part of this live production. The network is a collection of locally-based, locally-produced, locally-focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. Thank you, Brian Baltashevitz, for making the trip to Davidson. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In the live class of 1979 Davidson College reunion episode, we meet authors John Gertie, Elizabeth Holmes, and Hans Watford. Davidson graduates who prove that a liberal arts education really can help you do almost anything, including write a few books. John Gertie was a successful college basketball player turned college sports commissioner turned lifelong musician who reads and discusses his latest book, Ball or Bands, which explores the question, football versus music, as an educational and community investment. And speaking of exploring, Elizabeth Liz Holmes whose talents have allowed her to navigate the worlds of prose and poetry, takes us on an adventure in her book, Passing Worlds, Tahiti and the Era of Captain Cook. And finally, who better to write novels about doctors fighting for their lives in a medical suspense thriller than Hans Watsford, who lives the life of a doctor every day? We'll find out from Hans whether Dr. Jack Harris will live to make it to book three. The live episode started with John reading a part of his book that shows two sides of his personality, SEC Sports Commissioner by day and a blues man by night known as Willie Marble. Liz then reads her poem, Incidental, which illustrates what can happen, only incidentally, the captain might argue, when the people from one world visit themselves upon people of another. And Hans then reads a scene where Dr. Jack Harris, the lone physician in a decaying and cash-strapped emergency room on a cold Louisiana night, meets a young female assault victim who will lead him on a journey for his and her very survival. Now let's tune in to the live podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, at Davidson, we had dismal team records due to a program that was in severe disarray. During my four years, we had five head coaches, which must be an NCAA record. <laughs> Yet despite the disarray and disappointing records, I loved everything about my, the school and my experience there. Most important was the way athletes were treated by students and faculty. 
While basketball was important at Davidson, as soon as we left the courts, we were treated not as stars, but as regular students. At Davidson, it was very clear to us that academics were our first priority and would not be compromised by an overemphasis on basketball. That is why even today, it is a unique place to play Division I college basketball. Being in a program in such disarray led to seasons of many losses, which teaches humility. Perhaps the incident that best exemplifies this aspect of my Davidson experience occurred during pregame warm-ups versus Wake Forest University in the old Charlotte Coliseum. At the time, Wake was ranked in the top five in the nation. We were significantly overmatched at every position. We looked like a high school team compared to them. While we were warming up, Wake trotted out of the locker room, passing by us on their way. A teammate of mine, Carter Todd, his eyes wide, followed each of them as they passed by and remarked, hey, who chose these teams? We need to pick over. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, after Davidson, I continued my education at Ohio University and got my master's in, in sports administration, PhD in higher education. Spent three years at the NCAA and, and six years as associate commissioner of the Southeastern Conference um, for compliance and academic affairs. So shortly after I arrived, I was asked by the athletic directors to come in and you know, brief them on what this compliance and academic affairs stuff really means, okay? And I'll, I'll pick up the book from there. I proceeded to give them my best rap about the importance of compliance, academics, institutional integrity, and student-athlete welfare, and how, with their help, we were going to turn the Southeastern Conference into a model of institutional control for athletics. In short, I spilled my guts. When I was finished, I'd, I'd left it all on the meeting room floor. Silence. Then a longtime athletic director leaned over the table, cleared his throat, slowly turned to me and said, son, I don't know who you are or where you're from, but you best remember you in the SEC now. <laughs> <laughs> the culture of the SEC male-dominated football obsessed in the Deep South is one of the last bastions of a very conservative old boy network. By day, I was John Gertie, associate commissioner of the SEC, a very buttoned-down, shirt-and-tie, big-wig in the straight-laced, ultra-conservative jock culture. At night, however, I was known around the artsy, funky, five-point section of town with its bars, restaurants, and nightclubs as Willie Marble, blues musician. These were virtually polar opposite cultures. The beauty was that there were only two or three people who knew how the paths crossed. Fine, upstanding, all-American jock by day and funky bluesman by night. I had a great time in Birmingham, but life moves on. With the birth of our first child in 1995, my six-year stay in Birmingham came to a close. Likely at the right time, as by then it seemed that I was spending more time being Willie Marble than John Gertie. Incidental. They wanted food, water, sex. They meant to advance science, seek adventure, serve the king, win souls for Christ, or earn a wage and stay alive. It was purely incidental that the fleas on the rats on a French ship carried plague, that surgeons declared men clean, allowed them ashore, not knowing venereal disease could incubate months without symptoms, that the introduction of alcohol made alcoholics, that girls gave birth to half-European babies to be brought up with love or killed, that sheep, a world away from their rock-walled pastures, left behind as gifts, suffered unsheared till they died of the heat. That cats, another gift, ate flightless birds to extinction. That islanders came to despise alike infanticide and tattoo artistry, human sacrifice, 
and the phenomenal skill of canoe builders and cloth makers. It was incidental that decent men intending no harm, fixed Tahiti in the crosshairs of longitude and latitude for every predatory ship to come, that within 30 or 40 years the population declined 90%, that no woman started, inflicted, or exacerbated any of this, Incidental, that people who had known where they stood on their island like a great fish, in a family, in a class, in the bright world above the ancestors and gods, now perched idle, shrunken, backward, on a volcanic dot in the Pacific and did not know, alone, as in the beginning the one god, Tauroa, stood alone in the void and called and called, but nothing replied. Being a god, he changed himself into the universe. They were not gods, and Tutumu, the rock of foundation, had cracked, though the dome of the sky still soared where Tane had propped it on pillars of stars. They could no longer hold up their heads beneath it. Dr. Jack Harris breathes into his cupped hands. The heating in the ER wasn't good enough to overcome the frequent burst of cold, damp air through the automatic doors, a cold that cut right through him. He'd only been in the CR rotation for three nights, but the freak winter weather made it feel more like Nova Scotia than the remote coastal town of Duval, Louisiana. His white coat and scrubs were no match for the brisk wind that froze sheets of ice on the ambulance ramp. Jack rubbed his eyes and took the x-ray film from their sleeve. The small hospital was leaking money so fast that it was just a matter of time before it closed, and the administration had issued new budget cuts that bordered on the absurd. They'd taken away the view box in the private dictation room, so he had to get his first look at the films in front of the patient, something he dreaded since it robbed him of the chance to compose himself if the news was bad. He eased past the curtains around to eBay, ER Bay 3, snapped the x-rays to the view box, and looked at the girl. Is it getting numb yet? So what do you care? She shivered in her wet clothes. He draped a blanket around her shoulders. She'd turned down the offer to change into some dry scrubs. Why shouldn't I care? It's none of your business, that's why. She straightened her back, all attitude. The ER chart said that Shannon Willis was only 16, too young to have taken that kind of blow to her face and arm. Jack had already set her broken wrist in a cast. The bruising and cuts looked like someone had wrenched her arm before it broke. He had a feeling that she hadn't fallen down some stairs, the story she'd told the triage nurse. She jerked away when Jack tried to, to gently examine the laceration over her cheekbone. Overlying the cut were small marks, the kind knuckles might make. He ran his hand through his thick black hair, something he'd done since childhood whenever he was worried. He was only 28 himself, but he wasn't sure how to reach her. One poorly chosen word and she'd run. Your cheekbone isn't broken, but the swelling's bad and you'll have a nasty bruise. It'll take a few weeks for the discoloration to go away. Weeks? She strained to see her reflection in the glass cabinet doors above the counter. Am I gonna have a scar? I don't think so. I can close the skin with some stereo strips. It hurts, I know, but I'm sorry. You might need something for pain, but I'll have to give the prescription to your parents. I don't need any pain medicine. Just fix me up and I'll go. Is there anyone here with you? 
She nervously ransacked her purse, removing her lipstick and some paper. I've got money. Jack heard the harsh signal from the emergency radio at the nursing desk. The triage nurse would answer it, but it would only be a matter of moments before she'd call him. What we talk about here is confidential. I'm worried about you. Maybe I can help. I don't need your help. The bone's not broken. Just fix it so I don't have a scar. The nurse pulled the curtain ajar. Dr. Harris, there's a call for you. Ambulance? It's the police. He could sense the young girl tensing up, but before he could say anything, the nurse said, one of the officers has been shot. They're bringing him in a squad car, and they're close. Our three authors graduated with me from Davidson College in 1979. Despite our various majors, we each became published authors. John Gertie was a Davidson sociology major and all-American basketball player. He's the author of five books, among them Baller Bands, Football versus Music as an Educational and Community Investment, Airball, American Education's Failed Experiment with Elite Athletics, and Sports, the All-American Addiction. John has been recognized by the Institute of International Sports as one of America's most influential sports educators. Elizabeth Liz Holmes was a Davidson English major and is now a writer and editor for the President and Provost of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and the author of three novels and three books of poetry, most recently Passing Worlds Tahiti and the Era of Captain Cook. Her previous collections of poetry are The Patience of the Cloud Photographer and The Playhouse Near Dark, both published by Carnegie Mellon University Press. Hans Watford was a Davidson biology major and is now a cardiologist in private practice in Birmingham, Alabama, and the author of two medical thrillers. His first book, Mortal Strain, won first place for outstanding fiction at the prestigious Santa Barbara Writing Conference and was nominated for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel by an American Author. The second of his Jack Harris series, Lethal Risk, was nominated for the SEVA Best Fiction Book of the Year and highlighted on Fox News as one of the best books to read on summer vacation. The great thing is that John, Liz, Hans, and I are just a few of the authors in our class. Others include Francis Taylor Ginch, Michael Kennedy, Cynthia Newberry Martin, Tim McDowell, uh, which only goes to show that when you go to a college that doesn't feature multiple guest exam questions, you too have the foundation to write a book. <laughs> hey, uh, welcome to the show, Liz, Hans, and John. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Landon. Yeah, so this space we're in, we're in the old 900 room. This is... Uh, as you recall, in college, uh, the, the carpet smelled a little different, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like spilled beer. So when the three of you were sipping on pitchers of beer here in this room as 18 to 21-year-olds, uh, did you have any idea, any plan, any notion, any daydream that one day you'd author a book and come back 40 years later to the scene of the crime to talk about it? Liz? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not thinking of that when I was in the 900 room. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I know Hans was. Hans, you were thinking ahead, right? <laughs> no, no, no. I was thinking of other things, so, but I was not, not about writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I did some research uh, long before we were in school here. This building housed the library, as you know, and that's where the name came from for this room because it housed the 900 series of books. And I didn't know what that was, so I went on, uh, you know, Google, Wikipedia, or whatever, looked it up. The 900 series in the Dewey Decimal System is history and geography. It's a perfect alignment with Liz's poetry book about Captain Cook's voyage. And now this space is the Sloan Music Center. Perfect for John's book promoting music. Hands? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you know, what? I mean, why are you here? Did you, bar did you bartend or something? No, I mean, no, no, but I kept them busy. Okay, <laughs> you kept them busy. Well, let's talk just a second about how your Davidson degrees led you to where we are today. John, you were a sociology major at Davidson. Is there any way to connect the dots between sociology major and nonfiction author, and did it help you with this book in any way many years later? 
I, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Uh, the sociology part of it did all that much, but I do believe that um, the culture of Davidson and you know my experience here as an athlete uh, and as a student. Um, you know, the, one of my uh, core beliefs, which informs all of my writing on this subject, um, is that uh, as much as we love athletics, we have to value and support and fund um, education. And uh, I, you know, my parents, I learned after my parents by coming to Davidson, that only reinforced it. Uh, the values of, you know, the, the culture at Davidson in terms of, you know, honesty, integrity, community service, giving back. And I do think that regard, using those values that were taught here, um, you can use that as, the, you know, the prism through which to look at any, you know, any, whether it's medical profession or whether it's education or whether it's athletics, using those core values that we learned here at Davidson, I think serves as a great foundation upon which to look and evaluate other areas and sort of apply those principles to, to what are issues you're writing about. So Liz, you were an English major at Davidson. That might be the most direct path <laughs> to, to authors, because uh, I'm gonna jump on hands here in just a second again. Uh, so being an English major, um, how was the connection for you? I mean, because you've been you've done prose and poetry. Well, I was always interested in in writing, um, even when I was a kid. But I think what Davidson did for me, um, I think I had great professors in the English department, and um, we did a heck of a lot of close reading, um, just really looking hard at a text and seeing what's in there. Um, why did the author do this or do that? Um, why choose this word and not that word? And I also had great professors who said, eh, you turned in an essay, it's clear, it makes sense. Now make it interesting, you know, do something <laughs> more with it. Um, so it was that challenge, I think, to uh, sort of open your eyes when you're a kid who likes books, then you uh, suddenly, you begin to find out how hard it is to write them. Yeah, and Hans, you, uh, you, you biology major. Come on now, um, you probably had a fill in the blank test or something, right? I'm guessing. But is there so, is there some kind of connection here between biology major and writing about uh, medical stuff? Well, I I think um, one of the things I really liked about Davidson was that we didn't have many fill in the blanks, even in biology, even in our labs. You had to stand and defend things, and you had to know more completely a subject that you might not have known if you just knew to study for the answers and pick the right answer on the on the page. And that attracted me to Davidson's, one of the many things that attracted me to Davidson, but also the benefit all of us have had is there was such a standard of exploring with your brain in every class you had, whether it was mm -hmm. science class or any other class. And the, the professors here are special. We all know that. We've been talking to some of them as we've been here this weekend. And they want you to think. And they want you to think outside the box. And they want you to think and, and really stress your brain when you're here in a way that makes your brain nimble later for other things that come your way or surprises. And this was a surprise to me. Yeah, we're going to get more into the writing life before the podcast is over today. But uh, before we do, I think I'm, I'm seeing sort of a pattern here. And maybe a lesson. Davison taught us to write. Uh, that's just what we had to do, right? Um, so it seems to me like uh, a couple of old jocks like John and I can write a book, and hands can turn medicine into medical thrillers. Now we know, Liz, you, you got there 
direct path. But if he can do that and we can do that, anybody in this room, I mean, just write some books. Next next time we'll have a bigger panel up here, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to do something fun now. You know, when, when authors try to sell their books, uh, unlike when my dad was selling encyclopedias in high school, he went next door to the neighbors and said, you don't want to buy any of these encyclopedias, do you? That's, 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 <laughs> why he, that's why he sold encyclopedias. So authors are always trying to sell their stuff. And one of the things they have to do is, I'm going to put them on the spot here in just a second, and I'm going to submit to it as well, is you got to make an elevator pitch. So here it is. We're actually going to be on an elevator. You're on an elevator panel from the first to second floor in chambers. Uh, you run into somebody from the class of 1979, and they see you holding your book. And they say, oh, you wrote a book. Tell me about your book. Now, you only got 30 seconds. It's a slow elevator, but it's only going one floor. <laughs> You've only got 30 seconds to sell your book, okay? So uh, if you do this well, you might make 95 cents, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's, let's, let's go for it. Uh, John, 30 seconds. Tell sure. us about your book. Sure. Yeah. Um, our, our, our schools today are faced with increasing expectations regarding uh, how to provide students with an education worthy of the 21st century. Of course, this is happening against a backdrop of declining resources. So therefore, every single dollar counts. We have to be more efficient and effective with every educational dollar we spend. And the purpose of this book is to do uh, uh, a return on educational dollar invested in uh, football versus music programs. And if you did keep score, like in a football game, uh, at the end of the game, the score would be uh, music 55 and football about 20. Hands, you're up. Dr. Harris is a young doctor who encounters a teenage girl in the ER that he thinks has been assaulted and abused. And he is pulled away with an emergency gunshot wound with the police departments involved in. And when he comes back to see her, she's gone. Later that night when he's off, he sees her talking to some guys that are lowlifes, and he breaks that up, convinces, to let, convinces the girl to let him take her to a hotel where he puts her up for the night with the desire the next morning, the intention the next morning to take her to social services and get her some help. But when he shows up, the police are there, and there's blood in the room, and they think he killed her. So, uh, Liz, uh, you're up. It's a poetic reimagining of what happened when the first Europeans arrived on Tahiti 250 years ago, um, led by the famous Captain Cook. Um, the poems are in multiple voices to try to bring to life a cast of characters um, who are on both sides, who are all caught up in all sorts of cross-cultural clashes and miscommunications and even some friendships. Uh, the book's a poignant depiction of mistakes, mixed motives, and a society whose delicate balance was altered and then finally devastated by the impact of a far different one. All right. Now, since I put them through this, I'm going to have to play too. Okay. So, uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I've, written <laughs> 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 I've, uh, I've written a trilogy of books about lawyers who saved Christmas. How about that? Uh, one of my reviewers says it's kind of a cross between my cousin, Vinny, and Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, it's, uh, the theme of the book is Believing Without Seeing, uh, which is a powerful idea. Uh, and they're all separate legal mysteries, and they have happy endings. Okay, so right. how do we do? How do we do? Everybody, everybody gonna buy the books now? All right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, we're gonna take a little bit of a two to three minute dive in each book for a second. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the the panelists uh, some questions. Uh, we're gonna start uh, start with John. John, you wrote this uh, nonfiction book. It could be called an entertaining thesis. It's uh, and in your opening read, you make clear that you're not just a lifelong musician uh, and you're not just a college athlete, that you're both. So my question is, why did you feel it was important to lay that kind of foundation 
before you got into the meat of the book? Uh, be, because I, th I think by laying that foundation, I mean, I, I've competed, quote unquote, at the highest levels of both, of bo you know, both in athletics and um, in, in education, my PhD, and um, founded and run a, a, a music-related nonprofit and a lifelong musician. Um, I, th I think it was important because it is critical of, of football. And um, so on one hand, it was important for me to say, hey, you know, I, I grew, I grew, my father was a high school football coach. I grew up in a football locker room um, and, uh, and, a, and a successful athlete. So therefore, I wasn't just sort of like a, you know, a pointy-headed, you, know, uh, you know, pointy-headed intellectual criticizing sports. It was important to establish Nobody was that. ever going to accuse you of being a pointy-headed. But it was important to establish credentials on both sides of the equation because right. I, I, just one quick example is like, you know, one of the primary justifications for um, athletics is, is as being part of the educational process in an educational institution is that it teaches teamwork, right? And uh, that's one of the primary justifications, things you can't learn in the classroom, you know, supposedly. But anyway, I've been in a five-person basketball team where everybody's working together, communicating, discipline, teamwork, time management, uh, personal responsibility, all of those things in pursuit of a common goal, right? But I've also been in a five-person band, and there's no difference. Communication skills, discipline, teamwork, personal responsibilities, all of those things. And it's just important, I think, for me to establish that I've played both sides of the uh, of the coin, so we're right. hopefully so give a broader. Let's get to the heart of the issue here, though, John. So your book title is "Ball or Bands," and your subtitle is "Football Versus." That's a word lawyers use. Versus music as an educational and community investment, and yet when I read the book, you find many similarities among football and music. You're building character, teamwork, discipline, community building. On page 100, you point out two studies: one that found the students who played vigorous sports like football performed 10% better in math, science, English, and social studies, and that music students scored 11% higher than non-music students on SATs. So why does the choice have to be one or the other? I mean, didn't you see, remember the Titans? Those dudes could sing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Does it have to be one or the other? No, no well, in a, perfect, in a perfect world, it shouldn't. But we no longer live in a perfect world. I mean, you know, there's... You know, we're, we're schools are struggling. Uh, you know, resources are being cut. Um, and uh, yes, yes, there are uh, certain things that they both do. But as you read through the book, I offer different things in terms of character development, in terms of brain function, in terms of direct impact on academic performance, um, in terms of how it impacts school culture. And, you know, I went into it not, I mean, I had my my ideas about it, but I, I really tried to go into it really a balanced perspective. And by the end of it, it was just painfully clear to me that um, if in doubt, if you had to choose, and, and increasingly as, um, as parents, as educational leaders, as community leaders, we're going to have to make those tough choices. Uh, and it is in the perfect world. So, um, so therefore, that's, that's why I wrote the book. That's where I, um, and that's, that's a conclusion uh, that, I, that I came to. But but again, I, you know, I'm not happy about it, right. you know. But it, but I, I just think that's the that's the reality of the world in which uh, we live today. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, 
it, it did I actually, you know, being a football player myself, I went into it. And I, ah, I'm not, I don't know, but I'm not going to buy. And I started reading it, and there, you, you make some good points in the book, so it's it's worth uh, exploring. And speaking of exploring, Liz, let's talk for a minute. You wrote a book of connected poems related to the British explorer Captain Cook and his three-year voyage in the mid-1700s on the Endeavor in the Pacific Ocean, and particularly his impact on the people of the island of Tahiti. What drew you to write about this period of time in history? And being a novelist, too, why did you decide to express it in poetry instead of prose? There's a lot fewer words in poetry. You don't have to write so much. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I knew absolutely nothing about Tahiti, and I don't know a lot of history, really. Um, but I sort of by accident came across an, a little essay that was about one of the one of the people on Captain Cook's ship who uh, was an aristocratic naturalist who, when he came to this uh, island, he kind of threw himself into learning all about this culture. And um, that kind of piqued my interest, and I began to read more about it, and I, I began to realize that it uh, sort of called into question the vague assumptions I had about colonialism and um, you know how those how those uh, connections happened between European countries and some of the places they explored. And it just became deeper. The more I looked into it, the more there was to see. Well, your poem, Incidental, which you read at the top of the uh, program here, the opening poem, which is called Prophecy, your first line of that poem says, something strange was coming. And you sort of spell that out in Incidental as to what happens when it came. Uh, but in your last four, li four lines, you said, this land will be taken by them. The old rules will be destroyed. They are coming on a canoe with no outrigger. So what did you hope that readers might take away from this work about the unintended side effects of exploration? Huh. Well, I should probably say that those lines that you read are, are actually words that were said by a priest on a nearby island just a few years before uh, the Europeans arrived. So he was quite a good prophet. I can visualize this ship, you know, and, and you've got this one scene you're going to read where they're looking over the edge and they're taking in this new city. By the way, mm -hmm. Mutiny on the Bounty went to Tahiti too, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah, Short, yeah, not but, just a few years after this, these there, incidents. They're expand them, yeah, and have a mutiny on the way back. All right, they did. so you wrote an afterward about the details of Cook's voyage and you cited many sources. Did you have to do a lot of research for this book? I did quite a bit of research, um, and of course, most most of what you can find is from the European point of view, um, but it was really fun to read the journals of people who were there, um, and, and they'd get their different perspectives on it, and the interesting ways, just, just that 18th century language yeah. was, was kind of interesting, and I did find... Some, there are some scholars who have really studied all of this from the point of view of the Tahitian people, too, and that was hugely helpful. All right, so before our mid-podcast uh, mid break, I'm going to talk to Hans just a second. Hans, your protagonist in your series, he's a young, handsome doctor, strapping guy. He's skilled enough to handle most any medical emergency and smart enough to solve a mystery, but not quite intuitive enough when it comes to understanding women. So how much how much of you hands is in this case? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I'm not strapping. I'm not handsome. Um, and I went to an all-boys school for 12 years before I came to Davidson, so I don't know anything about women. <laughs> it's imagination. <laughs> now, okay, they, you know, sometimes they say write what you know is good advice. Sometimes they say it's bad advice because it limits you. But uh, you've used your knowledge of medicine to bring realism to your scenes. And, you know, like on pages 19 and 20, I'm reading along, and it says, when Jack Harris is attending a gunshot victim, you will learn about the clavicle area, the aspiration of the femoral vein, an arterial clamp, frayed tendons, good exposure to the radial artery, and blood getting to where it needs to be via the ulnar artery on the other side of the forearm. Now, first, how did your editor and publisher know whether you're telling the truth? <laughs> well, it's interesting how I came to this because I had written a book. I spent about 10 years trying to learn how to write um, mysteries and thrillers. And then the first book I wrote got an agent for me, but it didn't get me published. And I had kept it a secret. I was a doctor, and there was a little bit of medicine there. And I had gotten a close call with five big editors in New York. And uh, one said, you know, the, even the medicine doesn't ring right. And my agent was frustrated. And she said, well, he's a doctor. He should know. And she <laughs> called me and said, hold on. And I didn't know what that meant. But I got a call from five editors who had taken a pass on my book, and every one of them said, will you write a medical thriller? And I said, sure. So, <laughs> But the uh, one thing I learned pretty fast is that people who like to read medical thrillers, they understand these things, and they like those things, and you sure don't want to talk down to them. All right, so when we come back, we're going to have more readings, more conversation, plus our writing life segment. Uh, but first, a short message about the uh, Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, listeners, I'm here with uh, Brian Baltashevitz, uh, the king of Queen City Podcast Network. <laughs> wow. is, that, is that your title? I, I got a promotion. That's yeah. great. That's... Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, uh, I'm just a surf here. I'm, I'm, I've just joined it. So what, what is this thing? You know? um, Queen City Podcast Network is a collection of right now 18 locally produced and podcasts all about Charlotte, produced for people in Charlotte. So anything you want to know about Charlotte, we're talking about it on the network. Yeah, and just all different kind of conversations, right? I mean, you got history, you got books, you got things that are happening that nonprofits people do good things. And, yep, and, and news got, and current events, and, and, and some of your original shows you, that you had when you started the, the Comedy Zone. Yeah, uh, the Comedy Zone, uh, Yelp Charlotte, uh, the uh, Charlotte Podcast, and Cheers uh, Charlotte. And it's right the beer on podcast. the tip of your tongue, Charlotte, so Charlotte Readers Podcast, <laughs> the Charlotte Readers yeah, Podcast yeah, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, so where, where can where can Listeners who want to listen to all these podcasts that are Charlotte-centric, where can they find you? You can find more information and actually listen at uh, queencitypodcast.network.com, but you can find all, all of our podcasts individually at Apple Podcasts. That's great. Hey, thanks, Brian. Keep, keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Lance. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, listeners uh, and uh, my friends and classmates from the 1979 class of Davidson College, welcome back. We're here with John Gertie, uh, Hansford Watford, and uh, we've got Liz Holmes here. We're going to have a second reading now from each of the books that we're featuring today. The first reading is going to be from Liz. It's, uh, it's a poem. It's entitled Cook, the Nature of Seamen. And Liz, before we start this, uh, tell us about Captain Cook. Well, I've made this story sound pretty grim and sad, but actually Captain Cook did have a sense of humor, um, and uh, he was a guy who had come up from nothing, the son of a laborer, uh, unlike a lot of naval officers. Uh, he was um, not an aristocrat, um, but here's his take on uh, 
working with ordinary sailors. And this, this steals liberally from his journals. The unvaried diet of a long sea voyage, salt beef, salt pork, dry bread full of vermin that tastes as strong as mustard, if unrelieved by fresh food, allows scurvy a footing in the ship. This I propose to prevent by means of sauerkraut, portable soup, and malt, a decoction of the latter given by the surgeon to any man with the least symptom. The sauerkraut the men at first would not eat, and I made no attempt to compel them, merely had it served to the officers daily, letting the men take as much as they pleased or none at all. In a week, I had to ration it. Such are the tempers and dispositions of seamen. Give them anything new, although it be ever so much for their good. They murmur, malign the inventor, grumble, refuse. But the moment they see their superiors set a value upon it, it becomes the finest stuff in the world, and the inventor a damned honest fellow. <laughs> so Liz, the thing that I found interesting about this, one of the things about this poem was that uh, several lines come directly from the journals of Joseph Banks and from Captain Cook himself. Mm -hmm. And these journals were also almost lost because that ship, uh, I think, was damaged on the... the it, it came very, very close to going down on the Great Barrier Reef off Australia. So how much truth was employed in this work and how much required the use of your imagination? Well, there's nothing in here that's uh, contrary to known facts. Um, I tried to fill in some gaps. I tried to imagine more about how some of these people felt uh, because the, the journals, most of them tend to be pretty matter-of-fact because they were... They, they knew they were going to be published. These are not really private diaries. So is it true that sailors uh, in that day and time would eat dry bread full of vermin? Oh, yeah. And turn their nose up at sauerkraut? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Very much so. Right. Well, it tastes kind of a lot. I don't know. <laughs> All, right. All right. So uh, let's do hands for a second. Hands, we got another reading, which you wouldn't necessarily expect in a medical thriller with people running for their lives and bad guys and all this kind of stuff. You're going to bring a little bit of a romance thing in here. How'd you do that first? Sure. Yeah. These are two people who knew each other at another time, um, and I'll just pick it up. Celeste flattened a garlic clove with the flat base of a carving knife, then added it to the onion and tomatoes simmering in butter and white wine. There was a pound of boiled shrimp heaping in a mixing bowl, the steam still rising. She opened the refrigerator and poured a glass of Pinot Grigio for each of them. Wash up, then pull, peel the shrimp. If you remember how that is, Jack said, it, it's been a long time, but not that long ago. She looked at him, and for a moment, her eyes caught his as they once had. It was only a moment, but it had depth and resonance, a moment with tender meaning that he could feel because he'd once loved this woman. He wanted to ask her now, ask her what had happened between them, why she'd left. Her words from last night had been recurring ever since she said them. It wasn't my idea to leave but all he could do was look at her. Celeste said, when I saw you in the parking lot down in Duval, it was like no time had passed. I knew we'd see each other someday, someplace. I thought you were mad at me and I don't blame you. You deserve better. I just wish we could start over and maybe play that scene again. He wanted to reach out to feel the warmth of her skin. Maybe that could happen. She paused and looked at him. Maybe it could. He took in everything about her face, her light green eyes, every subtle movement as she watched him watching her. 
I thought about you, wondering how you were. She looked away, flipping the fillets before they were ready. Jack moved next to her. For months after you left, people would bring up your name and just pretend to be embarrassed. It seemed like they did it just to see how I'd react or what I'd say. His voice felt like it was about to crack. But I didn't want to answer. I, I wanted to know where you were, why you'd left. It was killing me inside, but they just wanted something to talk about, so I didn't say anything. He tapped his hand on the counter and said, listen to me, I, I'm not even making sense. She smiled and said, you sound just fine. Where did you go? His voice was almost pleading, the words having slipped out faster than he'd hoped. So Hans, you've got, uh, you've got a relationship here, but uh, you also bring something into the book, which I think is often overlooked. You, you're trying to hit all the five senses. Right before this scene, a meal's being prepared. We see the garlic clove, the onion and tomatoes simmering, and white wine sauce, and there's boiled shrimp heaped in a mixing bowl with steam still rising. So how important is it in writing a book to touch more than just the sense of sight? I think it adds a lot. And, um, you know, one of the hardest things that was, one of the hardest things for me to learn was why I liked certain books. I would read books and underline, when is the moment I loved this character? When did I follow him? And it still was ethereal. And I had a teacher who um, told me one time, you know, what's important is what you leave out. And even though I don't think this, what I just read is necessarily an example of that, he, he said something to me that answered a question, and that was, why do I visualize certain books well? Why do I visualize scene and relationship? And he answered a question, and we had a discussion. He said, that's it. And it was that you lead people to let their imagination grow into what you've written, and you leave out the important little detail that they're going to add, and then they take possession of it. And that's easily said. It's easy to do in a ham-handed way, but knowing what to leave out uh, was an important lesson for me. Uh, and some of that is you lead up to it, I think, with engaging senses and then back away and hopefully the reader has, or someone listening, has put their own take on it uh, by you leading them there and then backing away and let them come into it. Well, speaking of senses, if this were a sense, keeping an open mind, uh, which is something that's not done too often, in this day and time. Mm -hmm. John, let's, uh, let's move to yours because you've got a, a middle read here that's kind of a call to action, uh, sort of a, uh, where you talk about the point of the book is to have a serious debate. Can you pick it up there? Yeah, well, there's interesting, you asked earlier about sort of the reasons for writing this or my perspective on it. And, you know, I, I did because I have, a, I've spent a life, a life spent in both, in both arenas, both areas. Um, so anyway, when I started working on this, I was kind of going slow. I was just sort of gathering my thoughts on it. And, um, and, then, and then, then all the stuff about uh, the relevations about uh, brain trauma started to come out regarding all the research and, and, and uh, all that stuff came to light. And it really added a sense of urgency uh, to purpose. You, know, you need to get this done you need to, because it's timely and it's important. So... Uh, I'll pick up, you know, why, why that's why that is. The point of this book is to spur and better inform that debate. It's to provide context, insight, and information to help education and community leaders, as well as parents, approach these questions with a clearer understanding of the educational and society playing field when extracurricular funding priorities and decisions are considered. Open and honest debate of these issues is critical because we live in an age when schools simply do not have the resources necessary provide unlimited extracurricular activities. 
As a result, we must make choices regarding the most effective way to invest our increasingly limited educational resources. But all of this context and dialogue is of no use without the courage and commitment to go where the logic, truth, and data take us. For example, if during the process we find that either of these activities is successfully meeting its educational purposes, will we have the vision to invest more heavily in it? But what if one or the other is not? What if it is determined that the investment in one or the other as an activity, extracurricular activity, brings a greater return on educational dollar invested? What should our school boards do? What should we as parents and taxpaying citizens do? Will we, have the, will we have the courage to make what may be very difficult and unpopular decisions? Despite the fact that some of the answers we may find may be uncomfortable or inconvenient, we should welcome this discussion and analysis because if we approach it honestly, the end result will be better schools serving our children and communities more effectively. In the end, isn't that what we all want and what our nation needs? So John, what was uh, one of the most uncomfortable and inconvenient answers uh, that you found for people who love football, and for me, people like me who play college football, what was one of the most uncomfortable and inconvenient answers? Well, I mean, I mean, it, again, my father was a high school football coach. He was also the physics teacher in our school. Um, so I had that balance right from the start. But as a product of the system, I'm a product of the system. I mean, I would not be where I am today without basketball and the opportunity that Davidson provided me to play basketball. So um, it was really bittersweet in a lot of ways because I truly believe in the value and importance of athletics as an educational tool. I mean, that's the primary justification we, ha we, we have for it, to be a part of our educational system. And I strongly believe that. Um, but I also believe that in many cases, in football in particular, really, really putting the ice on the cake is all the brain trauma stuff is that organized athletics, elite athletics within our educational institution, institutions, we've lost perspective on it. Um, you know, it, it, again, as much as we love athletics, and God knows I love it, I mean, I owe everything to athletics. Um, as much as we love athletics, we have to, have to love and value and uh, invest in education more. These are, these are all the good points, and one of the things you talk about is the mm -hmm. longevity of being able to play music versus yeah. football, but I have to say, I went to see Three Dog Night play recently, and there might be some brain trauma. Up uh, <laughs> 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 on stage, those guys look pretty damn old, I'm telling yeah. you. So, uh, but, so but, 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 again, but again, one of the primary, one of the primary functions of our educational system is to teach lifelong learning skills, right. and you can do this forever, play music forever. So, I, so because I put them through it, I'm going to read you a little bit of piece of uh, what's the Christmas Redemption. It's the third my, in, in my book, and I'm just set up for a second. So we've got the, this is another Christmas trial. Each of these are trials, and lawyers are trying to have to save Christmas. And Tarina Winters is in the deposition stage, and she owns a toy company. It's called the Tip Top Toy Company, and she's, they've manufactured the most popular Christmas present in 50 years. It's the reindeer hoverboard. But it's been failing, and uh, there's a class action suit, and the FBI's involved, and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, so Robert Greenback, he's a plaintiff's lawyer, is questioning her in her deposition. Uh, Thad Rakers, her lawyer, are you saying your company is not at fault for the failure of the hoverboard to fly? Yes. Can you prove it? Mr. Greenback, I've watched enough courtroom television to know that the proving part belongs to you. You're an arrogant woman. Aren't we a match? Fine, Greenback said. We'll do this slowly, one fingernail at a time. The reindeer hoverboard failed to fly for 75% of the adults who bought it, correct? 
Well, that's true for those 75%. And whose fault was that? Theirs. I don't understand. Well, I did not expect you would. Greenback-eyed Torino winner with a jaw-clenched contempt. Well, why was it their fault? They didn't heed the warning label. Greenback took out a document, marked as exhibit one, and laid it in front of the witness. Would you mind reading it into the record? Not at all. Winner took out her glasses, placed them on her nose, and tucked the stems over her ears. Then she read, warning, this product only works for true believers. How do my clients ignore the warning label? Come now, Mr. Greenback, you can figure this out. He picked up the exhibit and looked closely at the warning label. What exactly is a true believer? Ah, that's the best question you've asked today. She turned to Thad Raker. Mr. Raker, would you like to tell him? Greenback was impatient. What's she talking about? Raker swallowed a smile and looked Greenback in the eye. A true believer is an adult who believes in Santa Claus. Silence. Is this some kind of joke? I'm not joking, Raker said. Greenback looked back at Trina Winter. Are you telling me this case has something to do with whether my clients believe in Santa Claus? Trina Winter sat up straight and brushed another strand of silver gray hair from her left eye. Welcome to my world, Mr. Greenback. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to do a little bit of a writing life segment here. This is a part of the book, uh, part of the show where we kind of explore the ins and outs of writing. Uh, I'm going to start, Liz, with you. We're going to do a little either or. Uh, you get to pick uh, either or, both, neither. Uh, what's your preference? Uh, ink, pen, or keyboard? Pen. Dictionary right. or spell check? Dictionary. Okay, so outline or free flow? Free flow. Free flow. Or you do it by the seat of your pants. In the light of day or the dark of night, when do you write? Early morning. Complete quiet or background noise or music? Quiet. Writing the first draft or revising and polishing your work? Revising a million times. A million times. Marketing your books or digging a ditch? Give me the ditch anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, hands, I got, I got a couple for you. These are true false. I mean, you probably had these in biology. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> routine. Routine is an important part of my writing process. True. All right. And how, how does that work for you? Well, I find that um, when, when things are going best, I have periods of time that are uninterrupted where I can get in another character's head. And uh, it's amazing how easy it is to pop that bubble. And I can't just go right back to it. But when I get in a routine of writing, you just want to keep writing. And it, it can be a certain time of day. I write at night primarily. And um, you sort of have a learned experience. It's just easier to get into it if you do it routinely. True, false. Rejection does not bother me. False. <laughs> <laughs> Getting editorial feedback is fun. False. <laughs> Writing the second book is harder than the first. True. Explain that. Well, there's pressure. And I also had a year instead of as much time as I wanted before the first one. So I had a contract for a year. And uh, that, you know, when I had three months left, I had uh, not everything written. But that also, I had a detailed outline that I hated doing, but they required it. Um, and some of that was for their PR people and people who do the covers and all that kind of stuff. They don't, they don't really read your novel. They just get summaries. And um, it really helped me since I was having a hard time devoting myself to finishing the book, and then suddenly I'm panicked, and I had my outline, and it just flew, and it helped the writing. So plot is more important than character? No. Trump faults. The, the key to writing a book is to put your butt in the chair and write until you're finished. 
false. false. I don't, I don't yeah. think that's the key. That, yeah. That's important to do it. That's, that's what I think everybody who's successful people I know who have been really kind to me, who are very successful, will say it's just hard for them to get it done. So they have to do that. But um, you add a lot more to it than just writing. Yeah. And, and back to the character for a second. Tease that out because there's always a plot, but there's a character, and there's two things to a book. One is the plot that's going along on the surface. Then there's always some hidden meaning, some theme that has, and if it's not there, the book mm -hmm. is missing a foundation, right? Right. Some people call that the arc of a book. Yeah. You know, what keeps it going, and why? Why do you like the character? You know, I, I, I have had some writers that I've finished their book, and I said I would follow that guy or that girl in any story. You know, and I, I, it's ideal to find somebody who's get a character like that. But I think one thing that's common to people who write is that stories and suggestions are not the problem. I have too many plots in my head. They come all the time, and it took me years to realize that's what was going on, and I didn't recognize them as stories for the longest time. And then suddenly I realized, oh, these are novels. They're scenes in a novel that unfold over time. It took me a long time to realize I just needed to figure out what's the steps between these scenes. And when that happened, I, I really got into it. But, um, you know, there's a lot of work to get there. And um, there's, I, I don't think you can teach people uh, to have an imagination or to appreciate speed and timing in any type of book, but you can teach craft. And that's some of what you're talking about is the understanding ahead of time before you write it that you need to, you as the writer needs to know some things that maybe aren't in the book, but the way you write it will be informed because you know what that arc is, what, what the underlying story is. So people's actions, their, their reactions, what they do will be consistent with what that story is. That's the, that was wrong with yeah. my first book. I didn't understand that. All right. So we're going to move to John. John, since you're a sociology major, these are like essay questions, so you can, uh, and since you're the deep thinker and you're Willie Marble by, by night, and uh, you know, so here's the first question. I write because it does this for me. Um, I think it's my, it's my way of, um, of giving back, of, of, of encouraging people to, I mean, it, it's, it's funny, I, I, I had, I, I was involved in, my, my passion is education, really. Um, you know, I was involved in, again, son of a high school football coach, music teacher. I mean, I'm sorry, a physics teacher. My mother worked in the school system. My sister's a teacher. And so I went into college athletics uh, because I believed in athletics power and potential as an educational tool to supplement the educational process. So anyway, so I, you know, I, I went through the, you know, the NCAA, got my PhD, NCAA, SEC, involved in athletics. Um, but I always thought of it as education. And then when I, you know, I, I left the SEC to be a stay-at-home parent, and then this opportunity to reinvent myself after the kids got older and they didn't need dad around as much anymore, lifelong musician, I started doing the research on, um, you, know, uh, you know, what's going on in our schools, you know, in terms of cuts, cuts in music programs. But at the same time, you're cutting, cutting programs here, but at the same time, the research is just mounting every day about how effective it is as an educational tool, right? So it's like, so anyway, so I went, all of a sudden, so I started a nonprofit, and a music-related nonprofit, and, but people would ask me, uh, what, what do you mean, you're athletics, and now you're in doing music, 
You know, how's that different? Right, it's like now you're writing, which is back to the question I was asking. About. Right, yeah. right. Well, but, but the but the but the point is, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know, it so is. It, to me, it's about to me, it's about education, and that's my passion to get people to think about how we can improve our educational system yeah. for our And I was going to ask you a question: What are the vices and activities that interfere with your writing? But I think I know now. You've got music as a passion. You've got, uh, you know, what you're doing with this foundation that mm -hmm. you're working with. Um, but uh, do you have a funniest uh, or worst or best experience as a writer that you can share? I'd have to think about that. That, okay. I, that, that, that would be, a, I would prefer probably a yes or no answer on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no question on that. You know, you're, I mean, come on, it's an essay. You're supposed to be, at least BS it or something. Yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about this one? The first time I felt like I could call myself a writer was when? Oh, um, I guess maybe when my first book, book was published. That's great. So we got five minutes. We got three reads that last about a minute each. And we're going to do that. And then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we're going to start off with hands this time. Um, we don't, uh, I'm going to just tell you, so we don't have too much set up. You, you heard about the young girl at the beginning who's in, in the emergency room. Well, now she's gone out. Jack doesn't know where she is. And some bad guys are after her. Hands, can you pick it up? And they've taken her and they've put her in the fish hold of a, a shrimp trawler. He climbed the metal ladder and then closed one side of the metal doors that formed the roof of the fish hold. All you got to do is tell us where you stash those papers. He closed the other door and the cavity became dark, but she could easily hear his voice through the steel. A little time freezing your ass off may help you change your mind. Alone, Shannon tried her best to wipe her hair and face. Her skin burned where they'd ripped the tape. She curled onto her side, trying to conserve her body heat. They could do all they wanted, but she wasn't about to tell them where those papers were. Now she could prove what they'd done to her father and others like him, and all those men ruined just for the sake of money. Nothing and no one was going to stop her. They were about a half mile into the gulf when Wayne came to the wheelhouse and said, What if that bitch told him? Who? said Jewel. You know, that doctor who took her to the motel. Jewel looked at him, but his dull expression didn't change. He lit a cigarette and threw the match into the gulf. After a couple of deep drags, he said, Maybe that's why he tried to hide her like he did. He picked up his ship-to-shore radio handset and thought better of it since everyone in the fleet would hear. I'll make the call when we get in tonight. Even if he don't know, he's seen us. we got to do something about that. All right. So, uh, John, how about uh, leaving us with your final words on the topic? Okay. Um, last two paragraphs of the, of the book. To meet the increasingly complex challenges of the 21st century, we must develop in our populace a corresponding increase in creativity. One of the most effective, effective tools in our educational and community arsenal to teach creativity is music. We no longer live in an industrial economy that required workers to be physically fit, unquestionably obedient, and able to methodically perform the manual tasks required for an assembly line. While football may have been a wise educational investment in the early 1900s, continuing to invest in an activity best suited to prepare workers for a world economy that, world and economy that no longer exists is misguided. Music is a far better educational investment than football in providing the skills necessary to succeed in the interrelated global information-based creative economy and world community of today and the future. It's really that simple. In the end, it comes down to whether we, as educational community leaders, continue to fund an activity that scrambles brains and is better suited to prepare our children for an industrial economy that is long gone or invest in an activity that strengthens and builds brain capacity and brain function and that is perfectly suited to prepare our children to more effectively meet the challenges of the 21st century. 
All right, Liz, and you've got a final uh, poem here called Approach. Uh, could you share that with us? Yeah, this is from the ship uh, after months at sea. A land uneven as a piece of crumpled paper, precipitous heights and dark valleys, a beautiful verdure even to the tops of the highest peaks. Closing in, they crowded the deck to stare into unfathomed depths, a heaven of hues remembered, heard of. Meadow, shamrock, mottled apple, subtle moss and tender peas, fairy tale emerald, Chinese jade, mallard, peacock, wind-whistled barley, darkest hue of cemetery lanes. They plunged, they drowned in plush abundance, earth-born wealth, as they had not yet, praise God, drowned in the slippery, bilious shades of the sea. So, uh, audience and listeners, you can find out uh, about John Gertie's writing at johngertie.com, Elizabeth Holmes at elizabethholmespoet.com, Hans Wofford at whwofford.com. After this presentation today, we're going to the Ice House. They have beer there, I hear. So we're going to go there. Uh, you're going to meet with hall counselors. You're gonna, you can talk to the authors uh, at the Ice House about their books. But before we sign off and we do that, we've got a little end roll that'll have some music to it. Uh, I like to, you know, since we're in a music hall, let's kind of do this sign off thing like a band might too. On guitar and percussion, an author of many nonfiction books, including baller bands. Give it up for John Gurney, Willie Marble. <laughs> stethoscope <laughs> handler of all bloodborne pathogen issues for charlotte readers podcast and author of the jack hare stiller series give it up for dr hans watford <laughs> and on moral compass and, <laughs> and navigator to the pacific and beyond and author of novels and poetry books that tell important stories give it up for elizabeth liz holmes <laughs> Keyboard, mixing board, and the King of Queens City Podcast Network. Give it up for Brian Baltashevitz up in the left top here. Uh, and I'm Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer, struggling author, and host with much still to learn of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. And I want to thank you all for being out here today. Cue the music, please. Well, that's it for today. Three fine authors giving voice to their written words. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are kind of like that gasoline that drives traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, by the way, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, are on our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. And if you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, just email us. You know, there's a contact page on our website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. And if you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that. We'll give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up, we're not going to spam you because, hell, that takes too much time. Uh, but please don't forget our sponsors, Parkway Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. And you can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. We'll be back next time recording in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking right there in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. Until then, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thank you all for coming out today. Yeah.